Hi, everyone. Before we get to today's episode, I just wanted to let you know that LCI has another podcast called the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast. It's a little bit different from what you're used to. And because it's very different, we don't want to keep it in this podcast feed. So you can actually go subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom Podcast wherever you get your podcast. The Faith Seeking Freedom podcast is a podcast that is entirely question and answer. And because we've kept each episode short, we can actually release them more frequently. And you can actually listen to them in a shorter time frame. And you can even share them with friends or people that you want to spread the message of liberty. So check out and subscribe to the Faith Seeking Freedom podcast. Okay, back to the regular podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the status quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and today we are going to talk about a very important topic, which is scholarship and where the Libertarian Christian Institute fits into the contribution of libertarian scholarship. And I have Jason Jewell on to talk with us about it. You'll understand why here in just a minute. Jason Jewell is a professor of humanities at Faulkner University, where he chairs the Department of Humanities and directs the Center for Great Books and Human Flourishing. He holds degrees from Harding University, Pepperdine University, and Florida State University. He's a contributor to The Inklings and King Arthur and Christian Faith and Social Justice, Five Views, by the way, one of my favorite books on the issue. He has contributed to nine academic journals and five encyclopedias. He is also the brand new editor of the Christian Libertarian Review, which is also a project of LCI, and is associate editor of the Journal of Faith and the Academy. Jason, you have a nice pedigree there. Thanks for joining us. Great to have you. Thanks, Doug. It's good to be with you. So some of our listeners may not know that the Libertarian Christian Institute has an academic journal, and it started in, uh, or well, it started a little bit earlier, but the first publication, first volume was published in 2018. We did one in 2019 and 2020, and there's been a little bit of a hiatus since then, and you are now the brand new editor-in-chief there. But before we actually get into the Christian Libertarian Review, I want to ask, what is a scholarly journal for? Yeah, it's a good question. I think a lot of people in the general public are really unaware of the role of scholarly journals in developing ideas, um, particularly when you're talking about political ideas. You know, there are a lot of journals out there. When you think about, for example, legislation that gets introduced into Congress and that legislation is supposed to accomplish particular goals, the ideas behind that legislation often originated in some scholarly journal years or decades prior to that actually being introduced into Congress or a state legislature or something like that. So scholarly journals are where new ideas get tried out, really, among scholars. It's also where Mm -hmm. uh, new research is introduced, and scholars are sort of teaching each other about new ideas. Now, Mm -hmm. the way scholarly journals are supposed to work, really, is that The scholars can then kick those ideas around among themselves. They can debate them within the journal. They can supposedly, you know, embrace the good ideas and reject the bad ideas as part of that scholarly conversation. And then after those ideas get vetted through what's called the peer review process and then the debate within the journal, those ideas might then work their way out to more popular publications, magazines and 
popular websites and that sort of thing. And then ultimately, in the case of uh, you know what something like the Christian Libertarian Review might seek to do, ultimately is to influence lawmakers, you know, inf- influence some kind of regulation or legislation or something like that. So scholarly journals are where a lot of these ideas that might seem really off the beaten path or strange at first get tried out and workshopped sort of before they're introduced to a broader public. Well, my next question was going to be, why is this scholarship necessary? But it seems like you sort of answered the question in in the previous one. You know, it's interesting to me that we have seen, as an example, and, and unfortunately this is an example, but I think people would resonate with this, that you say that a lot of these ideas start with, you know, these scholarly journals and stuff that like, policy wonks would be reading and that kind of thing. And, you know, as much as I would love Rand Paul to be reading, you know, the Christian Libertarian Review, uh, he's probably reading other things that are of similar nature. But what we've also seen in the past probably five to 10 years more dramatically is the culmination of a scholarly set of ideas from the late 80s and 90s with critical race theory. And so we're now seeing a lot of that come to the forefront because the people educated and tossing those things, ideas around in the 90s are now coming of age. They're now professors. They've indoctrinated people who are now in the workforce. And so, uh, and I, yes, I do believe it's indoctrination. But the outcome is that these ideas have made it to the streets, as they sometimes say. So the idea of a scholarly journal is actually really critically important because it, in some ways it, it is part of getting ahead of things. I don't know if you have any comments on that or do you, do you think that that's sort of the, the best way to put it from your perspective as well? Yeah, I, I think your example of critical race theory is a really good one, that it's probably the most dramatic example of, let's say, a cluster of ideas, I guess we could call it that. 30 years ago, practically 0% of the American public would have understood these ideas or agreed with them if they had heard them explained to them. Yet, Jason, I don't know if anybody today actually understands the ideas either. <laughs> Yeah, some of it, a lot of that conversation is still pretty esoteric. Yeah, but you're you're right in that it's it's in the journals and in the in the case of critical race theory in some of these prestigious universities and institutions where the scholars talking among themselves kind of hammer out a lot of these ideas, the theoretical framework of it, and then what they think of as an action program to to implement a lot of these ideas in the broader society. And now we're seeing the results of that. So you can point to a number of other examples. One might be on our side, say the libertarian side, some of these ideas that get tried out like you know, school vouchers, for example. People like Milton mm. Friedman started talking about that way back in the 1960s. And it took decades, but ultimately that kind of worked its way into the conversation for policymakers. And now those have been introduced yeah. in uh, various states. So it can work you know, no matter what kind of ideological orientation you're talking about. But if enough scholars who are interested in those ideas get together and through conferences and publications like these journals, try to work out the details of a lot of that, then they can take those ideas to more popular discourse and and influence uh, people who have the opportunity to put those ideas into practice in society. Yeah, well, this this is a good time for us to talk about the place of the Christian Libertarian Review in that sort of family of need in our society, right? So what is the Christian Libertarian Review? And you're welcome to sort of update us on the little hiatus that it took in terms of publishing and where that's going to start. Yeah, I was not, I guess, I wouldn't say I was in the inner circle of the conversation that originally launched the Christian Libertarian Review back in 2017, 2018. 
but I was asked to be on the editorial board pretty early on and agreed to serve as a, a peer reviewer for articles and that sort of thing. So I have had a, a relationship with it pretty much since the beginning. But I think the vision was early on that there was a need for a specifically Christian journal dedicated to exploring libertarian ideas. There have been libertarian journals out there for some time, both scholarly journals and more popular journals and magazines and that sort of thing, of course. But for example, you know, the Journal of Libertarian Studies goes all the way back to the 1970s, and there have been a lot of great scholars published in, in that journal. But there wasn't one out there that was specifically dedicated to looking at libertarian ideas from the Christian perspective. And so when uh, Norman Horn and others you know, tried to found a, a scholarly organ for that kind of discussion, that's what led to the launching of that review. And there have been several, I mean, I think really fascinating articles published in the CLR during its short history. But as you said, we've had kind of a hiatus for the last couple of years. The previous editor got interested in other things and went on to other projects. And we also have looked at a kind of uh, different model for delivery for the journal. So we're committed to having open access and no, no subscription fees for people who want to access the articles. And we're also uh, just within the last few months have looked into a new web service that will handle the article submission process and the peer review process and should really streamline a lot of things. So when when Norman came to me in the fall of 2021 and said, hey, would you be interested in taking over the editor position for the CLR? I was really interested, but I was also a little bit, uh, had some trepidation, let's say, because I have a lot of other things on my plate, a lot of other projects going on, uh, you know, teaching at a a Christian school where there's a heavy teaching load, all those kinds of considerations. And so one of the things that I requested was that we have some mechanism that'll streamline a lot of this process. And so Norman agreed to that and we've got it set up. And, and certainly by the time this episode airs, we should have all of that up and running where people who want to submit articles can do it online in a pretty smooth process. And we can get those immediately out to our reviewers and all that sort of thing. So I, I think that maybe clarifying the the mission and the vision for the journal would be one where we're, we're, we're both Christian and libertarian. I, I know there's a lot of debate around those two terms, Yeah, but right. on the Christian side, I mean, I think a kind of shorthand for determining kind of where the, the boundaries are that we're kind of thinking of with uh, Christianity, I, I think maybe a shorthand for me would be if you can say the Nicene Creed without crossing your fingers then you're kind of in the universe of uh, you know scholarship that we're interested in, in in dealing with. So I love that caveat without crossing your fingers. That's that's pretty that's pretty good, man. Yeah, unfortunately, I feel like I have to say that because there are some people who will try to you know get around you know some of those provisions. But that's just so funny. A, a, as an example of where we might be drawing a line, let's say um, you know I, I know Mormon scholars who are very accomplished and write great stuff. And we would entertain a submission from a, a Mormon scholar, but if the article itself was advancing particular tenets of Mormon theology that are out of mm -hmm. you know sync with the Nicene Creed, then it's something that we wouldn't be interested in publishing in the CLR. We'd recommend that they find another outlet for that publication. But certainly, there's no religious test for people to right. publish in the review in terms of their own convictions. I mean, we accept 
you know, article submissions from agnostics or, or Muslims or whoever, as long as the, the article itself kind of fit within uh, those boundaries of, yeah. I guess, Nicene orthodoxy might be uh, a, a good way to put that. And then when it comes to libertarianism, I mean, there's obviously a lot of debate around that. And I'm interested in having, you know, as big a tent as we can reasonably have for the libertarian world. But again, we have to draw the line somewhere. You know, we've got people who call themselves libertarian socialists and things like that. And I'm thinking, like, if, if you really want to, you know, yeah. nationalize the means of production and all that, like, I think we're going to have to draw a line there. So what I would suggest is that, you know, libertarianism, what, whatever else it might be, is something that favors the reduction of the involvement of the state in social life. So if your article is, you know, aimed towards reducing state involvement in society, then I think it would be appropriate for consideration in the Christian Libertarian Review. If you're advocating something that on net would increase the role of the state in society, then it's probably not appropriate yeah. uh, for this particular journal. Doug, I mean, coming from the layman's perspective, do you think those are reasonable places where we would draw the line for uh, Christianity and libertarianism? Yeah, I totally agree. And I'm not crossing my fingers when I say that. Um, the, uh, the, the question that comes to mind is the trickiness of the actual last words that you just said that increase the state on net. I know that there is a debate, especially now with the Libertarian Party struggling to get anything more than four and a half to five percent of any national vote for president, that there is a Libertarian, not Libertarian Party, but like the Libertarian debate over how do we best reach other people. And there's a lot of sometimes animosity and hatred, other times just genuine good natured critique of some organizations that want to reduce the amount of state involvement in a certain way. And then there are other organizations that will say, well, we are about promoting, you know, a vision of liberty. And sometimes that means telling the government that they should adopt a certain policy that from people who don't actually like this proposal would say, well, but you're increasing state involvement and so forth. So the idea of on net, are they proposing this kind of thing? I could imagine that somebody submits an article that you have to, you know, look at and sort of decide whether to publish, that could be like, oh, but they're advocating, let's say, universal basic income, but from a libertarian Christian perspective. Is that uh, just, that actually was just a random example I thought of, but it's a very popular heterodox idea for a libertarian to actually sort of entertain. And there are libertarians that both you and I trust that actually do that. So that's a good example. I mean, what, what to do with those kinds of submissions? Yeah, that, that's a good question. And uh, again, for, for those of you who are not for the listeners who are not really that familiar with how scholarly journals work, when an article submission first comes in, the job of the editor, which would be me in this case, is to do an, a kind of an, an initial cursory look at the article and make a determination, does this submission merit uh, being sent on to peer reviewers for a detailed examination? So I could imagine, like in, in the case of the universal basic income, where you know, there might be at least on its face some kind of plausible rationale for how this might actually move society in a more libertarian direction. As the editor, I, I probably don't think it would be my role to make the call to say, I, I'm just going to throw this out right away. Mm -hmm. Let's at least let the reviewers uh, take a closer look at it and see whether it, you know, that, that case really holds any water. And then if they come back and say, look, this would definitely, you know, like double the 
share of GDP that the federal government accounts for, or something like that, yeah, yeah. then we would say, yeah, this probably isn't for us, even if it it's backed by good research, which it's just a, a policy agenda yeah, that we would okay. not be interested in furthering. But I would think that in, in those kind of gray areas and borderline cases, that that would be part of the job of the peer reviewers to make that determination. Now, if, like I said earlier, if someone sends in a submission that very clearly is calling for some kind of big state increase in society or the life of its citizens, then I I do think it would be within my purview as the general editor to just do a desk rejection of that submission and say, this isn't appropriate. Yeah, Uh, some things are pretty obvious. Yeah, find somewhere else to, to take that. Well, you know, this is actually a good idea to talk about the peer review process. I think there's a lot of confusion and maybe misunderstanding and and or misinformation about the either importance of it, how it actually takes place, what its role is. And I, there's this going to do double duty for our conversation here because we are still going to be seeing lots of studies show in the post-pandemic world that we are hopefully about to enter. And so what is the nature of peer review that everybody kind of needs to know? I wouldn't call this a detour because it's definitely relevant, but it's definitely going to do double duty on our conversation here. Yeah. So generally the idea of peer review is that before a work of scholarship gets presented or published and is publicly available, that it's going to be vetted somehow by other scholars who are at least going to ensure that there's no like really obvious errors that kind of invalidate the research in the, you know, like the scientific studies for COVID or whatever, you know, like one job of a peer reviewer would be to look to see that there's no, you know, obvious dishonest manipulation of data Mm -hmm. or, or something like that, or obvious errors in the calculation process that the scholar has used for something like political philosophy or libertarianism, something like that, it, it might work a little differently. The role of the peer reviewer is probably more along the lines of, is this submission missing any obvious ideas or failing to deal with any really important literature on this subject that ought to be considered before uh, it's presented to the public? Another role of the, the peer reviewer is to say, look, this article is not ready for publication right now, but it shows some promise. So maybe if if the author revises the piece and then resubmits it, Mm -hmm. um, maybe it would be, you know, ready to publish at that point. So that's, that's in general what peer review is supposed to do. It's supposed to vet submissions for obvious errors and then also help the people who have submitted the work to maybe help them to uh, improve their own scholarship through the feedback of the reviewer. Now, in the case of the CLR and a lot of other scholarly journals that try to hold themselves to high standards, you have what's called a double-blind review process. So what that means is that when the author of an article submits it, in in our case, on our website, they know that I'm going to look at it because I'm the editor, but I'm not somebody, I'm I'm not the person who's going to do a detailed review of it. And uh, the author does not know who those reviewers are. They don't know their identities If you look at the CLR website, you see a big, long list of scholars who are on our editorial board who do Mm -hmm. peer reviewing for the journal, but you don't know who specifically is going to be looking at your article in particular to review it. And by the same token, the people who I send the article to to review, they don't know who the author is either. So that that idea is that you're going to avoid 
favoritism or grudges, you know, between scholars or that sort of thing, if you have an anonymous process. So then ideally that takes the personality out of the equation and the reviewers can simply analyze the submission on its merits, give honest feedback, and then say this either is or is not worthy of publication right now. Uh, so that's kind of what peer review is supposed to do. Now, there, there have been some examples, of course, of that process being manipulated or in some fields where there's only a handful of scholars working in some very specialized field. It's difficult to do kind of a blind peer review because if there's only six people you know, working in a particular specialized field, then if you, if you send your work to get reviewed, you have a pretty good idea of who's going to be reviewing it because there are only a handful of people to, who are qualified to assess the research. But yeah. in the case of libertarianism and Christianity, of course, we've got a much broader pool of people to work with for yeah. potential reviewers. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I mean, I think the um, there's the meme going around, it has been going around for a couple of years now by mostly people on the left who talk about these people on Facebook who don't know anything proving the data wrong, you know, just because they just don't like the outcome or whatever. And it does ask for the question, like, what does a peer even mean? Because there are, and again, I don't want to take us too far afield here, but the concept of keeping a science within its own boundaries can be somewhat limiting. Like if there's like a narrow field, right, where there's like only three Sheldon Coopers, people like him, identifying, here's here like three people identifying problems with and, and making sure that a particular article is actually worth publishing. I mean, what happens if that article only it touches on things that are outside of it, right? It seems to me that there are people who are like on peer level, even if it may not be in their field of study, who are legitimately able to call BS or call qualitative, hey, hold on here, on things that are not in their field of study. So again, I don't want to go too far afield, but since I have you here and I want to ask this, does peer review only mean in-field of study or are there disciplines where they actually venture out a little bit more so that there's a little bit more variety? Yeah, I think that'll depend on the journal and the discipline that you're dealing with. It's certainly the case that, let's say, an educated layman can analyze you know, certain things in a, in a scholarly article in a, in a field that, if, let's say, he doesn't have a PhD in a particular field, but he's still competent to go in there and mm -hmm. look at how the the statistics are handled or something like that and can point out potential problems with it. I mean, like a math expert reading an economics sure, paper. Yeah. yeah. And, you know, the, the peer review process, it's not designed to be foolproof and it's not designed to ensure that there are no errors or that everything, uh, you know, like the, the person who's publishing the uh, article is correct in everything he's saying or the proposal or, or anything like that. It's simply a, a mechanism that is designed to ensure that you're not publishing trash. <laughs> I mean, I'll put it that way. Yeah. Uh, still, you know, like once the article gets into print, then it can open up debate and other people can disagree with it and say, look, there are problems with this argument. And so it's not supposed to be, you know, the, the, the fail safe that says we've gone over every nook and cranny and mm -hmm. the reviewers endorse everything that's in the article. Like I, I've refereed articles that, you know, came to conclusions that I disagreed with, but I thought that there was some, you know, good quality research involved in the in the piece, and I thought that it it was worth you know having other people be able to to take a look at it and evaluate it on their own terms and and start a conversation about it. So 
saying this deserves to be published is not the same thing as saying I agree with this or this is the direction we need to go or anything like that. Yeah. It's simply a mechanism that, that, that's trying to stop you know, obvious errors from being published. Now, in some of the cases that you're talking about, what happens on Facebook or Twitter or some of those platforms, often you'll have scholars who publish a study and the study is very carefully worded and there are caveats and qualifications and all that sort of thing. But then the way that journalists get hold of it and they present it to the public and they make it sound very sensationalistic. And so a lot of the stuff that we had um, coming out about COVID over the last couple of years was sort of of that kind, where the, the actual yeah. scholars who were publishing and the editors who published a lot of these articles did all the things you're supposed to do in terms of hedging their bets and having the right kind of qualifications and caveats. But then when it gets latched onto by partisans of one stripe or another or journalists who are looking to goose their ratings or what have you, then a lot of the nuance gets lost in that public conversation. So that's stuff that where, you know, if, if you're on one of those platforms and trying to make sense of some of this arguing that's going on, it's important that you actually try to go to the source and see what the actual, you know, scholarly piece is saying yeah, before yeah. you get possibly misled by some of the, the chatter that, that's surrounding it. Yeah, yeah. Hey, everyone, if you're like me, you listen to a lot of podcasts by producers and creators who have a listener support model. Sometimes people call it the Patreon model, where they ask listeners to give them money to keep the podcast going because they want a list of supporters. And there's certain benefits to doing that. They offer you know free episodes ahead of time or bonus content and so forth. LCI has taken a different approach because we're a 501c3 nonprofit. We operate solely on the donations of those who are generous and love what we do. Now, we are totally appreciative of the fact that we have a growing audience and everybody's sharing our content. But if you'd like to be one of the people who donate to the Libertarian Christian Institute because we're a nonprofit, it's actually tax deductible. You can do that at libertarianchristians.com slash donate. You can donate in a number of ways, some of which incur fees for us and some of which do not. And you can either choose to pay those fees or not. However you want to do it, any small amount actually helps. We actually do encourage people to sign up for some sort of monthly contribution. So that gives us a better sense of how things are going to go each month through the year. So even if it's as little as five, 10 bucks a month, that really helps us a lot. You know, that really adds up when more and more people do it. So we appreciate all of your support, whether it's sharing, liking, reviewing, and doing all that. But we, of course, appreciate an actual financial donation to the Libertarian Christian Institute. So I can imagine some people hopefully still tuning in. We don't tune into podcasts, but anyway, it's hopefully still listening, right? They haven't turned off and, and gone somewhere else. I hope they're still here because I do wonder sometimes, like, what about the non-academics? You know, I, I know a lot of libertarians are into understanding, you know, the way libertarian theory works, even libertarian praxis, but you know, it is a scholarly journal. And so it probably lends itself to a smaller group of Christians and or libertarians. But maybe you can make the case that uh, the average person should uh, at least dabble in reading an academic journal like this. Yeah, it's a good point. And there are journals out there that are in disciplines where unfortunately the scholars sort of try to keep people out who are not part of the club, so to speak, by using very technical language or jargon that they don't really need to use in order to get their ideas across. Uh, you know, I, I teach in uh, a university program that is you know, based on the, the great books. And so 
we have people from across disciplines coming in and trying to talk to each other in a scholarly way. And so there's a big stress in the programs that I direct to say, look, don't use discipline-specific technical terms or jargon unless you absolutely cannot make your point without using those things. But try to speak and write in a way that sort of the, you know, the educated layman could make sense of what you're saying. And that's really the goal with the Christian Libertarian Review, I think, that it is a place for scholars to talk to each other, but not in a, a sort of very jargony way that keeps out the uninitiated, so to speak. We want yeah. it to be uh, articles that, since we're doing open access, anybody can uh, can find the articles, can download them and read them. And we want them to be written in such a way that uh, even if you're not a specialist, you can still get hold of these articles and read them and, and get something useful out of them. Whether it's uh, something about particular you know, policies that you might want to see enacted or uh, history of ideas or history of uh, social movements or those kinds of things that might have some kind of bearing on the conversation about Christianity and libertarianism. There's a lot of different kinds of people, I think, who could benefit from reading the sorts of articles that we're hoping mm-hmm. to publish mm-hmm. uh, in the CLR. Yeah. So um, if, if listeners didn't already know, they can go to christianlibertarianreview.com and they can actually read for free all of the articles that are there. We've done three volumes and that's changing a little bit in terms of the publication schedule. So I don't know if you want to speak to that a little bit, Jason, as to what we're actually, how we're actually doing it. Previously, as, as, as I understood it, it was once a year we were going to release a volume. And so what's going to happen in the future? Yeah, your traditional journal, you'll have a, a set publication schedule and, and you try to put out a printed volume of that journal you know, on that schedule. But since we're moving to a more dynamic online platform, the idea here will be that maybe still every year we'll say that let's say that everything that gets published in 2022 might be considered volume four of the journal. But we're not going to wait around until we have a full volume's worth of material to start publishing the articles that have gone through that peer review process and have been approved for publication. Yeah. So we want them to be accessible and available to people as soon as possible once they're once they've gone through that process. So we'll be uploading new articles and new book reviews as they are submitted and as they uh, have been approved for publication and not try to dump everything at once, uh, you know, once a year. Yeah. So hopefully that'll uh, not only make the scholarship more timely so that people can get access to it more quickly, but also, you know, keep more community engagement with the website and with the articles that are being published. Yeah. And uh, Doug, I'd, I'd like to say something about the, the sorts of articles that we're hoping to publish. Yeah, uh, well, hey, this. you you uh, you knew my next question, so you're just going to jump right in. <laughs> yeah, you predicted my next question, I should say. Yeah, so, you know, the, to, to think that 2020 was the last time that things got published on the CLR website, you know, a lot has happened in the last two years in the world, right? And so a lot of... I don't, I don't know what you mean, man. It's just hunky-dory <laughs> over here. <laughs> yeah, so... There, there's been a lot of conversation about sort of how do libertarians speak to the present moment? You know, you go back pre-COVID and it seemed like a completely different world and the kinds of conversations we were having were a lot different from the kinds that we're having today. So one of the things that we're hoping to to entertain submissions about is sort of what's what's the libertarian strategy for the post-Trump and post-COVID world, right? Mm. Because so many fault lines appeared in our society as a result of those polarizing events, the Trump presidency and then COVID. And a lot of people who are 
now we've had in the last two years, like libertarians excommunicating each other and all kinds of crazy conversations that have gone on. Also within, not just within the libertarian world, but within the Christian world, there was a pretty influential article published in First Things Magazine, which is one of the big Christian magazines out there for academics, just in the last couple of months by a guy named Aaron Wren. And the article was called The Three Worlds of Evangelicalism. And he mentioned how, you know, really uh, since 2015, let's say, the broader secular culture has become more and more hostile to Christianity. So we're living in what Wren now calls the negative world. What does that mean for Christians who are interested in social development, civil society, the influence of the church on society? What are the strategies that Christians need to be thinking about pursuing? We've also had, as a result of Trump and COVID, a lot of fractures opening up within, let's say, like the evangelical world, for example, Mm -hmm. where a lot of the big name evangelicals, people like Tim Keller, the former pastor of the big church in Manhattan, the Presbyterian megachurch, which... Yeah, Redeemer Presbyterian. Redeemer Presbyterian. Russell Moore, who was the head of the Southern Baptist Convention's Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. A lot of those high-profile evangelicals, for example, now seem increasingly out of step with the sort of rank-and-file evangelicals who are filling the pews in most places. Uh, So those guys, some of them were like very vocally anti-Trump. They were never Trumpers, uh, even though a lot of the people that they were supposed to be representing in these positions you know, turned out and voted for Trump in droves. So that's opened up a lot of tensions and fractures within the evangelical world. You see some similar things happening in other religious fellowships as well. So in, in, the, in the scholarly world, how do we deal with that? And um, how do libertarians in particular speak to those kinds of divisions that we see opening up? Obviously, we would, we would love to see Christian unity, but are there ways that libertarians can uh, make proposals to maybe uh, heal some of those fractures uh, while also trying to advance a libertarian political agenda as well. So those are things that we would like to have discussed in the CLR, scholars who are thinking about those kinds of questions and have ideas about how we might approach those. And we'd love to see submissions of those kinds. Where are the most pressing needs now for Christians and libertarians? If if that's where, you know, the intersection of your interests, what are the, the hot button issues right now? I mean, I think pretty clearly religious liberty is one. That's something where we've seen a lot of assaults on religious liberty, culturally, some politically in the last several years. Yeah, and so right. how can we, um, you know, try to uphold that principle, which is, which is, you know, like one of the fundamental American principles, if you want to think of it in those terms, going back to the founding. Other other kinds of uh, questions that are seem particularly salient right now in the year 2022, where. Christianity and libertarianism intersect. We, we'd love to see article submissions on those kinds of uh, topics. I think another one of them is probably the need for the building of civil society. Like one of the common criticisms of libertarianism is that, well, you take away the state doing X, Y, or Z, and then everything will fall apart. And so I think it's incumbent on libertarians to be able to offer plausible um, alternatives for how civil society can can take up these functions. Um, the social functions that right now so many people are depending on the state to do, whether that's, you know, care of the elderly or, you know, other kinds of things that the welfare state currently does. And we ha- we need to point to, you know, real world examples of where that's being handled by civil society. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of thinking in terms of some of the listeners might have read the book Alienated America by Tim Carney that came out 
about three years ago or so, has a lot of really interesting observations on how, you know, in the era of globalization and certain parts of the country, we kind of lost out as a result of that in manufacturing and that sort of thing. What are libertarian ways to address those kinds of social questions instead of people just saying, you know, let's run to the state and, and look for money to, to try to uh, help these people out? Are there ways that libertarians can propose to address those kinds of uh, areas of, of real social concern? So building up civil society, legal issues like religious liberty, I think that's where I, I would like to see a lot of our research program going uh, within the pages of the CLR. Yeah. Um, we had one of the first articles in 2018, I guess it was, that was published in the CLR was by Alex Salter and Gene Callahan, which I thought was a really interesting piece about distributism. And for listeners who don't know anything about distributism, uh, you can go look at that article free on the CLR website. But I, I think it would be really interesting to see more articles written from a libertarian's perspective that engage constructively with things like Catholic social teaching or some of the tradition of social thought that comes out of the classical Protestant world, the Roman Catholic world, the Eastern Orthodox world, and ways in which we could try to advance some of the vision of that social teaching from these different traditions in particularly libertarian ways. Instead of running to the state to try to have some program that brings about this result, we'd like to see to do something that's, you know, propose methods that are economically sound and consistent with libertarian philosophy that would advance us toward that vision of a, a more Christian society. Uh, so all those things, are, I think, are you know, areas that are very ripe for Christian libertarian scholarship. I'd love to see people submitting articles that deal with those. And I'm sure there are others that I haven't mentioned here that uh, would be great for the journal. So I can imagine there's a handful of people out there listening thinking, hmm, I wouldn't mind submitting an article. I'm a good writer and I have some bright ideas and I can write at length very intelligently. But it's possible that they may not be able to write or I shouldn't even say not be able to write, but maybe writing for an academic journal isn't in their like sweet spot, right? And so it might be that they just need to submit a different kind of article to LCI for you know publication on our website. What would differentiate something like that? And what, what should a person think about before submitting something? Like how do they make sure that like whatever they're submitting is actually worth publishing in an academic journal? How do they sort of self-filter uh, as they think through that process? Yeah, well, if, if you have a, let's say you've got a something that you've written up, for example, and you look at it and it looks something that might go into an op-ed in the newspaper, that's probably not something that would be appropriate for a scholarly journal without some significant revision. But one of the things that you expect to see in scholarly articles, for example, is a lot of uh, engagement with other scholars' work, and you would see citations to those scholars' works. You see a lot of footnotes and a lot of attempts to sort of gauge where the conversation has been on that topic. So let's say you want to write something about you know, religious liberty, for example. A scholarly article about religious liberty would not simply talk about how great religious liberty is and how, you know, would mention a couple of horrendous things that have happened, infringements of liber uh, religious liberty that have occurred in the last few years inside a couple of newspaper articles and then say, we need to stop that. That wouldn't be a scholarly article. That might be something that um, could go on the LCI website. It might be something that could go as an op-ed in your local newspaper. But for a, a scholarly article that would go in a scholarly journal, 
you would need to be interacting with other scholars who have written about uh, religious liberty. And so you might say, um, you know, scholar A has contributed this important idea about religious liberty and, and scholar B disagreed with him. And, and, and then you might try to, mm-hmm. let's say, reconcile that disagreement in your article. Or you might try to propose a third alternative that uh, both of these er- earlier scholars had missed. But when you uh, write for a scholarly journal, you're sort of entering a scholarly conversation that other people have already contributed to. So I know we, all of us have been in a situation where we've been in the middle of a conversation with somebody else, let's say at a, at a party or something, and some other person walks up and, and tries to join the conversation. And instead of listening for a few minutes to figure out kind of like where, the, what stage the conversation is at, and maybe what's already been said and discussed, they try to just jump in and start repeating things that have already been discussed in the conversation. That's always kind of annoying if you're one of the Like you should have been here five minutes ago, man. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So you, you don't want to be the guy or the gal, I guess, who um, comes in and starts saying things that have already been covered in the conversation, right? You want to show that you are familiar with the state of the conversation up to that point, and you uh, are wanting to add something new, uh, a, a new idea or a fresh perspective that maybe uh, the other participants in the conversation had missed up to that point. So that would be, I think, a primary difference between submitting something to a scholarly journal versus something that's more of of the op-ed style Mm. or something that would go as an opinion piece on a a more popular website like um, LCI. Yeah, Uh, that's a great answer. I think that's a really helpful way to sort of differentiate for people. So... For those who do want to contribute, where do they go? What are some opportunities that are upcoming in this year for them to submit? Um, I guess since there's no publication deadline, it, there's no like, like, hey, you got to get them in by July 1st or anything like that. So give everybody the like practical, here's the steps they can take to participate and contribute. Yeah. So there's a couple of things that you could do if you are interested in maybe contributing to the journal. Uh, a lot of people will start off with an idea and they they have maybe a germ of an idea that could turn into an article, but they're not really sure how to develop it. There are a couple of ways that you could get feedback from other people on uh, developing that in a helpful way. One is that you could present your idea at a scholarly conference. Now, if you're in uh, within driving or, or flying distance of, of Nashville, Tennessee, it's just been announced that there's going to be a Libertarian Scholars Conference this September uh, in Nashville, downtown Nashville, and we'll put a link to information about that conference in the show notes page. If you have an idea that you could maybe have like a 15-minute presentation that you could do extemporaneously, or you could write it out in advance and come present it at that conference, you might present it at the Libertarian Scholars Conference and get some feedback from other scholars who are there at that conference that could maybe then help you turn it into an article that could be published. If you already have something that you think is an article, that you would like some some feedback on, and maybe potentially it could be published, then the thing to do would be to go to the CLR's submission page, which we'll have a link to that by the time this is this podcast episode is published. We should have all of that up on the website, links to that, maybe a link in the show notes page for this episode that would take you to the place where you could actually submit a potential article, a manuscript for consideration by the CLR. And then uh, when you submit that on our website, we use a, a service called Scholastica to handle those submissions. Then I would receive that as the editor. I would either forward it on to peer reviewers if I think that it kind of fits the parameters of what the CLR is all about. Or I might just send it back to you and say, look, this, this needs some more work. 
if it's going to be, uh, if it's going to go to peer review and I might make some suggestions about what would need to happen to your manuscript before I send it on to the peer reviewers. Excellent. Is there anything else that our listeners need to know that maybe I haven't prompted you or asked you about? I think we've covered it pretty well, Doug. As I said, Lord willing, by the time this podcast is published, then we'll have all that stuff online. Just go there and take a look at the archives of the CLR. Take a look at our submission guidelines and and ask yourself whether you've got an idea that might be appropriate for a, a scholarly journal. And then we'd, we'd love to, to see your submission. All right. Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, we will, uh, we'll have you on again in the future. I have a feeling, Jason. Thanks, Doug. It's been fun. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com.